The Guardian. Hello, Science Weekly listeners. It's Ian Sample here. We're bringing you another gem from our archive today, this time with the winner of the 2020 Nobel Prize in Physics, Professor Sir Roger Penrose. It's from 2016, when his book Fashion, Faith and Fantasy in the New Physics of the Universe had just come out and features some words of warning about both string theory and quantum mechanics. We'll bring you the first part today and the second part on Thursday. We hope you enjoy. The undergraduates of Cambridge University will satisfy their examiners have been presented by their college prelectors to the Vice-Chancellor to receive their degree. Today is another degree day. In the Senate House, as the candidates for a degree kneel before the Vice-Chancellor, they will hear the same 600-year-old Latin formula, Octaritate mihi commissa, admito te et gradum baccalaurei in artibus, in nomine patris et fili et spiritus sancti. In 1957, a certain Roger Penrose, now Professor Sir Roger Penrose, received a PhD in algebraic geometry from the University of Cambridge. Little did he know his future contributions to mathematics and physics would help the world of science define the anatomy of black holes, map space-time in four dimensions, and even create his own style of floor tiling. Order gets decays and things get more and more random. That's a slightly misleading way of looking at it, but uh, it's, it's, it's regarded as a very uh, natural thing that that's, this is what should happen. You try and you, you know, you make a building like this and if you just leave it, gradually it will crumble away. Okay, it may well take uh, many centuries for that to happen. I hope so, but, uh, but the second law relentlessly would chip away at things and gradually uh, things do randomize, if you like. Not content with this, he has turned his attention in more recent years to the questions of consciousness, the origins of the universe, and challenged the most basic assumptions of quantum mechanics. get more and more random in the future, but what does it tell you about the past? If you go into the past, they get less and less random. I'm Ian Sample. So that means at the beginning of time, in other words at the Big Bang, things were highly organised. This is Science Weekly. And it's one of these sort of almost paradoxes about cosmology, because in fact one of the greatest reasons for believing in the Big Bang at all is the presence of this microwave background which is all around us and that agrees with theory uh, and the theory says let's suppose that the, that the matter which produced this radiation was in basically in thermal equilibrium. Roger Penrose is now the Emeritus Rouse Ball Professor of Mathematics at the University of Oxford. I started by asking him about the somewhat enigmatic title of his latest book, Fashion, Faith and Fantasy in the New Physics of the Universe. Well, I think it was meant to be a bit enigmatic. It was a title I came up with sort of on the, on the spur of the moment, I think, when the Princeton University Press. This was in 2003 when I was invited by the press to give three talks, sort of semi-popular talks, in Princeton. And I think they probably woke me up too early in the morning or something, and I, I sort of trotted out that particular title. And uh, the idea is uh, that this has to do with very well-established theories in physics, which I was not altogether happy with. 
And the fashion primarily referred to, well, I would say string theory, but it's not so much string theory as the idea which came out of string theory, or at least it was involved in string theory, that space would need to have extra dimensions. So we normally think of space having three dimensions and time one, but the idea is that there are a whole lot of hidden ones, so that space has, whatever it was, 25 dimensions or 11 or, or 9, 9, depending on which theory you're working with. And uh, I had reasons d to disbelieve this idea. And so I was feeling that this may be fashionable, but maybe it's like fashions of the, of the past, which eventually died away. And the faith had to do primarily with quantum mechanics. Well, quantum mechanics is a fantastic theory, which has an enormous number of implications and confirmed implications. But it also has sort of paradox when you try to think of quantum mechanics at a large level. And Schroeder, Schrodinger himself was careful to point out with his famous cat. He said, according to his own uh, scheme of quantum mechanics, you could have a cat which was dead and alive at the same time. And I think he was pointing out the absurdity of this and rather pointing to the uh, in incompleteness or not totally correctness of current quantum mechanics. And so I was saying, yes, I agree with Schrodinger and with Einstein and with Dirac, in fact, that quantum mechanics is not the final story, that it will encounter changes which have to be made to the theory when objects get large enough. And so the faith is the faith that many, many physicists have that quantum theory as we now have it is sort of uh, an eternal truth or, or uh, something that has to be unquestioned. And so it, it has become a faith. And the fantasy, there's a big irony in all of these things in a way, but particularly with the fantasy, because that was aimed at certain ideas in modern cosmology. One of them, in fact the most important one as far as the book's concerned, is the idea of inflation. There is this view, which is absolutely standard now amongst cosmologists, that in the very, very early universe, the universe had an expansion which was far more, I mean, just expanded by a huge factor. And this was an exponential expansion, which uh, was apparently needed for all sorts of things in cosmology that people couldn't explain. And I never believed in it. And uh, if you don't believe in it, you've got to have something else. And so in the meantime, I had my own theory, which is what I call conformal cyclic cosmology, which asserts that the Big Bang was not actually the beginning, but the Big Bang was a kind of version of the exponential expansion of a what I call an eon that pre preceded ours. And it's the idea of this scheme is it's supposed to explain the real puzzle, which I do point out in the book, and I pointed out elsewhere, that the Big Bang as we know it was extraordinary, had an extraordinary precision to it, which the, all the cosmological theories I know, apart from my own, don't seem to address this question at all. We're going to dive into some of these issues you've raised in more detail a bit later on. But before we do that, I wanted to just rewind a little bit and take up these three words you've used for the book, fashion, faith, and fantasy. They're not the most complimentary terms for a, a scientist, I don't think. <laughs> What's the reaction of your colleagues been? That's an interesting question, and I, I, I could perhaps tell you after I've gone from my book tour. But you've delivered the substance of these. I've even given talks with that same title um, some years ago, even big popular talks. 
Have you been hit by many eggs? No, which I, I never. I always find this bit strange because quite often that's the current view, and then people are very polite and say, oh, "We liked your transparencies," and oh yes, clap, clap, clap. And then I suppose they go off and whisper to each other, has he gone off his nut or something? I don't know. <laughs> but I don't hear that conversation that they have afterwards. So I don't really know what reaction. I mean, it's a good question that you're asking. What reaction will I get? I expect I'll get rude reviews, you see, which will complain about these things. That may well be true. In his book, Professor Penrose focuses on quantum mechanics, string theory and cosmology. I wondered if fashion, faith and fantasy appeared in other areas of science. I think it's quite possible, but I don't know about them. I think, you see, I should explain that there's an awful lot of extremely good physics going on. So I'm not attacking that. For example, Einstein's general theory of relativity, which seems to be confirmed again and again and with this recent... Uh, discovery of these um, gravitational waves that LIGO has picked up on. I mean, that's fantastic. And you can see how precisely the theory does conform with nature. And quantum mechanics at the level at which experiments have been done, which doesn't involve a great deal of displacement of mass, we see an extraordinary, not just confirmation by experiment, but you have an extraordinary range over which quantum theory is seen to be playing its role. And I have nothing against that. I think those things are fantastic physical theories. I'm not attacking that. What I am attacking with regard to quantum mechanics is that you use exactly the same rules when you talk about large things. And there, I think it must be wrong. These theories within their range are fantastic. Maxwell's theory of electromagnetism is a fantastic theory. I'm not saying that's wrong or something. Okay, this has to be combined with quantum mechanics in the right way. Fine, people do that, and I have no complaint. But you say, are there other areas of physics? Not necessarily physics, but science, where there are these kinds of words might be appropriately applied, probably. I'm just not aware of what they are. Is there a chance that these three Fs are beneficial to the scientific endeavour, or do you see them as purely a hindrance? I don't. In a way, my book is slightly ambivalent in this issue. As the introduction explains, I say, look, I, uh, you know, if, these, if fashion or fa- faith or fantasy are too much influencing the work, yes, that should be pointed out, and that's bad. But on the other hand, there are benefits. A theory wouldn't be fashionable, especially if it's a very difficult theory, like string theory, unless it, had, unless it had, did have merits. And so one must look and see what those merits are, and do they uh, tell us much about the real world? Are they merits which apply just to pure mathematics, or what are they? And again, the faith, uh, well, you have faith in Newtonian, Newtonian mechanics, even when we do you know, space travel and all that. Well, we know it works extraordinarily well. And it still does, and it's still right to apply Newtonian mechanics. You just have to keep in mind it's not quite right. Why do you think string theory is still so fashionable in physics? It's not quite as fashionable as it was, and I was a little worried that uh, by the time the book came out, which was 13 years after the lectures I gave, that um, string theory would have become unfashionable. It's Amongst the experts, it's not so fashionable, at least not, I would say it has faded a bit. But if you ask the general public and say, well, what's the cutting-edge theory of physics? They might say, oh, string theory. And so it certainly 
is still fashionable. I think a big part of it is that the mathematics in the theory is very sophisticated and it has had an influence on mathematics. So you can talk to pure mathematicians and they say, oh yes, these ideas from string theory have changed the way we look at the problems we had before. And that's absolutely true. It has had a big positive influence. And there are people like Edward Witten and, and his collaborators and so on who've made very significant contributions to the mathematics which comes out of string theory. It doesn't mean that it's true of the world, of, of, of the nature of a physical world. But it's, it involves a lot of very impressive mathematical ideas. And these mathematical ideas somehow on their own sustain the theory at a level which is not, in my view, justified from the physical point of view. How can I, as a layperson, try and understand the problem you have with string theory? I, I, I understand that it's to do with a discomfort in the number of dimensions it calls for, but can you help me a little more? Yeah, I hope so. That indeed is the main issue I have. There's a thing called functional freedom, which curiously enough is hardly ever discussed by physicists. I did pick up on the ideas originally from John Wheeler, who's a very distinguished American physicist that I did work at Princeton, and, and I did work with, with him for a while. And he had this notation for functional freedom, which used infinities to the power infinities to the power infinities, things like that, which look very strange. But it's expressing a notion which was actually clearly put forward by Elie Cartan, who is a very, very distinguished French mathematician. And the point I'm making is that if you have a theory with a certain number of dimensions, then there is a certain freedom. It's an infinite number, but this number has a certain size, which you can kind of say, even though it's infinite. And if you have more dimensions, that number is much, much bigger. Now, it doesn't matter how many components your theory has. Let's think about an electric field, say, in ordinary space. An electric field has three components. You've got three different directions in which the strength can be measured. And you've got space has three dimensions. So you would say the functional freedom is, is, a, is a number which involves infinity to the infinity to the three, and the three is the number of space dimensions. Now, the thing is that the three components that the field has, people usually talk about, so how much, how, many, how much freedom is there in the field, and it might be the number of components. But what they don't normally say is the number at the top, which is the f dimension of the space. And if you have a space which has got more than three dimensions, that swamps everything else. The amount of freedom in those fields is going to be utterly swamp everything. So that if you have a theory which has too many space dimensions, there are all these degrees of freedom which will if you could tap into them, it would completely swamp everything and completely spoil your physics. Earlier on, you were saying how you were worried that by the time the book came out, the popularity of string theory may have faded. Aren't you actually worried that it hasn't faded? <laughs> yes. You see, I've got two different views. There's my personal view, which is purely to do with the book, and this is very selfish, is that it's a good thing it hasn't faded because this means my book isn't out of date yet. But that's a bit of a, a, a silly argument from the, from the broader perspective. And from the broader, broader perspective, yes, I, I am a bit, I'm very disappointed it hasn't faded. Yes, you're right. Later in the book, you talk about faith in quantum mechanics. And I wonder, do we need to be more skeptical of that theory? Or is it just we are overreaching what it applies to? 
I think it's more overreaching than what it applies to. But you do find that physicists do... I mean, it is a real faith that if you, say, talk about black holes and uh, there is an issue which is what people call the black hole information paradox, and this is that black holes swallow information or the swallow degrees of freedom, which is the way I like to think of it. And this is in gross contradiction with one of the basic principles of quantum mechanics, thing that people call unitarity. Now, if unitarity holds for black holes, then you can't lose information. And this land, lands you in a very strange, what seemed to me to be strange idea, is that instead of having a horizon for a black hole, you have something called a firewall, where you, if you try to fall in it, you, you just got frizzled up by the firewall, which I don't believe at all. But you're driven to this if you believe that quantum mechanics holds, as we now understand that theory, at a level of a black hole. Whereas I've always taken the view that black holes are way on the other side and that the rules of quantum mechanics, as we understand that theory, cannot hold. Does that have real kind of consequences for the theory, or is it really just detail and interpretation? And I know I'm being dismissive by saying really there. <sighs> no, it has consequences. I mean, it's definitely not interpretation. I mean, the usual view about these puzzles in quantum mechanics, the measurement problem, as it's called, or the measurement paradox even, the, the usual view is that it's a question of interpretation, and you've got to have the right interpretation of quantum mechanics, and then it all makes sense. And that is what philosophers or what physicists normally say. I'm saying something very different, is that the theory itself actually has to be changed and that the change in that theory is experimentally detectable. It's at a level which is not important to quantum mechanical experiments at the moment, but I would feel sure it ultimately would. It might indeed have relevance to quantum computing. I mean, if you've got a huge device which involves lots of displacements, quantum displacements, you might have to worry about whether this spontaneously became one or the other. And uh, it depends on details whether it's important or not. It might well be that if you, we get to a better physics where we really understand what happens, an improvement over quantum mechanics, and that, I argue, is a long way off, much longer way off than these experiments. Maybe somebody will have a better theory which says what happens when you make measurements when these superpositions become one or the other. And that theory might be a very interesting theory which could be harnessed in one way or the other. Maybe an advance over quantum computers would give you something which is closer to what we do when we understand problems and so on, which is maybe something happening in our brains, which is the other question you might ask me. We'll hear all about Roger's theory of consciousness and more in Thursday's episode. The view that in our brains there must be something going on which is outside the scope of computation. See you then. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.